And this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. Stay tuned for Trauma Code coming up. It is now 2 p.m. to New York City, trauma code to WBAI. I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. And I am Dr. Cassandra Raphael, an adult and child psychiatrist. Welcome to Trauma Code. Together we will focus on healing of mind, body, and community from trauma. We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large. Join us on Monday at 2 p.m. on WBAI. Look at us inside. Don't try to rhyme with VH1 has a show that you can waste your time with. Guilty pleasure, take the edge off reality and for a salary. I probably do that just sporadically. The OG Gucci boots are smitten with iguanas. The IRS piranhas see it. Get comments. In the hood, living in a fishbowl. Gentrify here, now it's not a shot at hole. Trend set up, I know, my shit be pro. Hands set up, because I ain't so global now. All you black folks, you must go. is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald live and in studio uh, and uh, students of our history might recognize that that was the, uh, the song for the intro that we did on our first episode um, I had a little computer mishap I didn't realize if you close a laptop on uh, a quarter a nickel a dime you can mess up the screen so I've uh, just for the people out there I'm usually the one that um, edits and designs those kind of intros puts our uh, our little intro on top of some music that I'm feeling for the week. So I was not able to do that uh, today or yesterday because of that. Um, but we'll have to get that back online because that's one of my favorite parts about producing uh, the show. So uh, welcome to the Trauma Code, everybody out there. Uh, you uh, are not going to hear the lovely Dr. Cassandra Raphael's voice in studio today. She has other clinical obligations. Uh, so it's just me for today. And Thank you, everyone, who's been joining us. Hope you appreciate it. Last week, we had on uh, the trauma surgeon from uh, Johns Hopkins talking about um, the uh, work he's doing against gun violence. So definitely, uh, if you're interested in those topics that we discussed, definitely check out our archives on the uh, WBAI archives on the website. You can also find our show wherever you get your podcasts under Trauma Code. Um, and uh, definitely you can check that out. Today we're going to have on uh, a journalist uh, uh, from Sudan, uh, Dalia, uh, uh, let me make sure I get her name right, Dalia, Dalia Abdelmonem, uh, who's been writing about uh, the war and everything going on uh, in Sudan right now. And, and, you know, as, you know, we spent the last week focusing on the eastern edge of the Sea of Azov, wondering what's going on with uh, Russia and Ukraine and 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 Putin and and his private militia turning on him and all of those things and before that we were all staring at the bottom of the sea uh, as uh, looking for a submarine that had already imploded. Um, we're going to take a look at that crisis that's been going on in Sudan and that's been worsening and that some people are saying again is turning into a genocide, for example, in the Darfur region. Um, but she's having a little bit of technical issues, so I think it's going to be a little bit before she hops on. Um, but in any case, and of course, the you know as the world was focused on 
uh, a handful of rich people in a submarine. There was that concurrent disaster where hundreds of people uh, on a boat in the Mediterranean were basically being followed and watched by the Greek Coast Guard while the ship uh, uh, lost power, listed, and and uh, sunk with uh, loss of lives of hundreds of people. So um, just a, a, a reminder, an indictment of, of where our focus is, you know, and, and whose, life, whose life is valued. Um, but that's not what we're going to do on the Trauma Code. We're going to focus today again, as I mentioned, on the crisis in Sudan uh, ongoing, see how we can lend some solidarity. And so I have to thank uh, Dalia uh, Abdelmanim for uh, some of her musical recommendations we're going to be hearing on uh, today's e- episode. Uh, and coming up, I'm going to play actually a, a Brooklyn-based artist uh, who is uh, at least half Sudanese, uh, as I mentioned, based here in Brooklyn, uh, the artist who goes by the name Odyssey. Um, so why don't we cue that up, Reggie, get a little musical break while we get everything set up with our guests. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald on the air in studio, and we have uh, on the line, uh, unexpectedly already, is um, uh, our guest for today's show, uh, Dalia Abdelmonaim. Dalia, are you with us, and how's my pronunciation? 
Uh, yes, I am. It's actually really pretty good. So apologies for the delay. I had technical issues. Not but thank problem. you for having me. You're right on time as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and, you know, for our listeners, uh, I, I've been following you on social media a little bit. You've been connecting and, and, and translating, I guess, a little bit, a lot of the news going on uh, from Sudan. Uh, and you kind of un, uh, identify yourself on social media as a uh, reformed or former journalist. Um, just so we get a sense of, of who you are and, and, and why I put some weight on your words. Uh, who are you? And, and, you know, you're calling us from London, but how did you get there? Uh, well, I'm Dalia. I'm a Sudanese citizen who I had to, f- I've been living in Sudan for the past 10 years. Before that, I was living in Egypt. And myself, along with my immediate family, we had to evacuate because our house was hit by a missile. So it was no longer safe for us to to stay at home, basically. Uh, so it took us two weeks to be able to leave Sudan. And I'm one of the very lucky few. I had a valid UK visa, which allowed me to move on to the UK, simply because I have a place to stay here with my sister and her husband. So that's the reason why I'm in London right mm-hmm. now. And you have some work experience as a journalist, right? Yes. Uh, during my time in Egypt, I was working in media. I was a correspondent for an African news media company. I also worked as an editor for a fashion magazine. And I covered the Egyptian revolution and so on. Right. And I was also an activist working for, you know, raising awareness grass, at grassroots level in uh, regards to what's happening in Sudan during the era of uh, Omar al-Bashir's government. So politics has always been in my blood. My father was a political exile as well, which is why we we lived in Egypt for so long. So moving back to Sudan was, it didn't take me me long to decide we need to go back because I wanted to put into effect the work that we've been doing for so long. So, and then we saw the the fruits of our labor basically during the revolution, which started in 2018 and culminated in 2019, April, when Omar al-Bashir was overthrown in a popular non-violent revolution. And just, pardon the interruption, for our listeners who, mm-hmm. you know, may or may not be very familiar with Sudan, what was, you know, the 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 life and the political situation, the context of living under Omar al-Bashir before, you know, that uprising that you described? It was a dictatorship. It was a dictatorship that used religion as a political tool. It was a dictatorship that exacerbated ethnic tensions between, you know, Sudan is, is like a melting pot. It's made up of so many different ethnic groups and, you know, uh, racial groups and languages and dialects. And... Throughout the 30 years of Omar al-Bashir's rule, we basically had internal conflict. We had the conflict in Darfur, the genocide in Darfur. We also had the conflict in another region called the Nuba Mountains, who are mainly Christian Sudanese. So it was a horrible period. We were ostracized. You know, we're a pariah state internationally because uh, the government was deemed as a sponsor of terrorism, of terrorist groups. So we had American sanctions on us, economic sanctions for more than 30 years, which really crippled our economy, our ability to even, you know, survive or work, you know, in terms of international transactions, in terms of international deals. So it was a hard, it was a hard time. It was a hard time for a lot of Sudanese. And so there was a lot, there was a large brain drain when a lot of Sudanese who were able to migrated and became, you know, to work abroad, became expats. They, you know, they sought refuge in other countries. So it wasn't the best of times, but at the same time, it helped to galvanize because we were, those who were able to leave could, could see what was happening elsewhere in the world and taking all those ideas and, you know, and start to implement them as to how we could have that same better, you know, better future for our own country. So then tell us a little bit about the period around that uprising. What, uh, what do you think um, sparked that, that change in the popular consciousness, and, and what was the result of it? He, basically what happened, the, the simple, I mean, it was always happening. It was always brewing 
underneath the surface, but it was always put down by the army, by the security forces. But sometimes it just takes, you know, a, a small thing to set off the fire, so to speak. And what actually happened was there was a price hike in terms of the bread, the cost of bread. So the vast majority of people could, couldn't afford to buy bread. And it started off with a group of high school students who just protested like they can't eat. They couldn't buy their lunches. And that just, that was just the, the flame. It just, everything from there, it started from a group of students culminating in the whole country going out protesting against the rule of Omar al-Bashir and the government on April 11th. I mean, for a month, the whole country was out. And we also had... You know, the diaspora, the Sudanese diaspora were also doing their part, you know, holding rallies and protests in Washington, in London, in Paris, Berlin, wherever there was a large Sudanese community, Toronto. And so that also got, you know, the world's attention. I don't know if you remember, there was the Blue for Sudan. You know, it was a big social media uh, event. It, 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 one student who was back in Sudan for the holidays was killed by the security forces. And because of one person's death, the world's attention, you had celebrities like Rihanna and Yara Shahid, you know, posting about it. And it just went up. It just got the world's attention. And the pressure increased on Omar al-Bashir and his government. And the people's will won over in the end. So, and... and I'm I'm not a terribly uh, well-informed, if I'm being honest, uh, student of the history of Sudan. But I know that there's several players right now, go, uh, you know, that are fighting for power in Sudan that have also been important players or actors within power struggles, you know, going back at least over the last generation. Mm -hmm. uh, can you give us a sense, what was that process like where Bashir was forced out of power it, was it just the, the popular uprising and the country became ungovernable? Or did um, other people holding the means of power, whether you know financial, industrial, or military, um, play a hand in sort of escorting uh, Bashir out of power? I think it was a mixture of two, because previously, whenever we would have popular protests, they would put it down, you know, they would be forcibly put down. But it reached a point where the people didn't care, you know, you want to shoot us? Shoot us. And, you know, we're a country of 44 million. How many security agents can you have to put to hold back that, um, that number of people? And I think at the same time within, like you said, the military, you know, economic actors and political actors, the realization came that he has to go. This government has to go because the country was at a standstill. It was paralyzed. There was nothing was, you know, everything. We had civil disobedience, you know, the trade unions, you know, joint forces. Sc uh, schools were shut down. I mean, we paralyzed the whole country. It just came to a standstill. And there comes a point when you, you know, if you're a smart politician or if you're a smart person, you realize this is the end. You know, there's only so much, you, you know, there's only so much, so many bullets that you can shoot at us and they won't have an effect anymore. You can shoot five today but you can't shoot 44 million. I, I'm pretty sure I saw an NP article that quoted you at the time uh, saying that uh, they can't kill us all, and that was sort of motivating everyone to push full force to, uh, to ex enact that change. Yeah, I mean, is, the is fear factor was gone. I mean, we'd all go out in the protest knowing that we could get you know, killed or shot or hit, but we didn't care. We had no fear. We really had no fear. I still remember, and I looked back, and I was like, God, you know, it's, it's weird how you, from inside of you, just get this, like, sense of strength, and, and you feel, you know, powerful, and we just all went out. We, it was, I mean, it was the best of times, it was also the worst of times, in a way, but I look back at, at 2019, 2018, and think we did it, you know, it, we never thought we could, but we did so what did that, you know, there was a transitional government, right, where the, the yeah. leaders of the military um, either had to or decided to, um, you know, include um, civil society representatives, right, in, in the process of governing. What did that time look like? We had so much hope. We really thought we were on the right track. We, I mean, I was 
so optimistic. I think I've never been that as optimistic in my life like I was in those two years of the transitional government because we could see change. We could see, you know, but we were the shift, the political shift, the economical shift, the social shift. And we all, I mean, I know so many people who moved back to Sudan because they all believe this is the perfect time. This is the time where our country needs us. And we can all come in with our ideas and our plans and our thoughts and just rebuild this country. And that was all taken away from us from the coup d'etat, you know, uh, under the under the the military head, uh, General Burhan, in October 2021. Hmm. So for two years we had it. It was good, you know. It was as good as it got in regards to how bad our past was. And then in a matter of a few days, it was all taken away from us. As someone who lived through that on the ground, um, and you know, I think as you were a, a student of the revolution in, in, in Egypt as well, and it sounds like something similar happened, although right different political dynamics, where the military yeah. opened up a political space, and then when they found an opportunity, closed it down and retook control. Um, yeah. Did you see that coming at the time? Was that was that um, a sense that that this was a, a constant threat, or, or were people sort of taken uh, by surprise? No, it was a constant threat. But we we thought the mechanisms had been in place that it wouldn't actually happen. But I mean, Sudan has a very horrid history of military coups. I mean, it's it's. I think every few years we have a, a coup or a coup attempt. So we weren't really surprised, but I still didn't expect it, even though I'm a student of politics and I know Sudan and the politics of Sudan. You know, in the back of my mind, I knew it was going to happen, but I just didn't expect it to happen so soon after our revolution because we had momentum. We had the whole world wanting, you know, wanting to help us to, to move forward. But a few select few didn't want that for us and they ultimately had the power to do to to stop that and that's what they did and that that tragedy of the of the military coup uh in sudan in 2021 right was compounded uh, now by the fracture of of the the military elites basically who are fighting for control of the country um, yeah do you want to tell us a little bit about who were the actors um as you understand it in in, in um protagonizing the situation and, and how did that how did that start how was that crisis that caused you to flee the country um, well they were the best of friends I mean they basically there's a paramilitary group called the rapid support forces which was be previously known as the Janjaweed they were the ones who were actually mm -hmm. fighting in Darfur and in a way they were like Omar al-Bashir's private army mm -hmm. and they were given the power, they were placed on this pedestal where they became a reformed and like a recognized unit, military unit, when in reality, they're paramilitaries, they're, they're, they're mercenaries. And on the other hand, you have the Sudanese army, which is an institute. I mean, every country has its army, so the Sudanese army is an institute. So the two heads of the two, the two armies, they joined forces and they, you know, they planned the coup. But then there's a power struggle because there are two forces and each one wants to gain the upper hand. Each one wants to be more powerful than the other to rule. And that, and it broke down. The relationship broke down because each one was jostling for power and neither one of them wanted to give too much to the other side. So it was inevit inevitable that, you know, what we have right now, this conflict, you know. But the difference is that before when there, there was conflicts, it was always in the periphery. Hmm. This is the first time a conflict has actually come to the capital, to Khartoum. And, I mean, the capital is the center. It's where the government is. It's where everything functions. So the fact that the capital, the center, is, is under, a, it's like a, it's a war zone, means the rest of the country, you know, this, where do we go as a country? Where do we go as a nation? Because it's, there's a splinter. Right. So there, a, it's, it's a yeah. It's so a it's in a way where that none of it represents the, the 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 people living there. No, no, it doesn't. They never have. I mean, even the army. I've always said this, and I've got a lot of flack for this, but the army has never had the Sudanese people's interests, best interests at heart. They have fought us. They have fought people in Darfur who are Sudanese. They fought conflict in southern Sudan before it gained independence. They fought conflicts in the Nuba Mountains, who are also Sudanese people. 
but because it's now in the center, you know, they brought the, they brought their war to the center. It's now basically everyone. But you can't, you know, end of the day, if given the choice as a Sudanese, you will always opt and support the army because it is an institution. It's not a paramilitary mercenary force. But if you look at our history, neither side has actually ever worked for the benefit of Sudanese people. And, you know, as an outsider just trying to follow the news and, and understand what's going on, my sort of understanding was that, um, you know, as the two sides were kind of jostling for their um, position in terms of resources and power and, and military might, um, the RSF, right, the Rapid Support Forces, uh, led by, I think, Hamedzi is what he's often uh, referred to. Yes. Uh, sort of uh, launched the attack on institutions of power, particularly in Khartoum, but also elsewhere in the country. Um, and while while the um, the national military maintained control of the air with the air force, um, and so while while the RSF was brutal on the ground, the, the military was brutal from the air. Um, and as you mentioned, your home was was hit by a missile. Nobody was immune um, from from that violence. Even just trying to get enough. Um, bread and food to feed their family, right, for a day or a week. Is that, yeah, is that I mean, about what happened? The, yeah. Basically, I mean, I, I keep saying this, we, we're being hit from the ground, we're being hit from the sky, basically, you know, and we're caught in the middle, literally caught in the middle. And, I mean, there was, there was a period of when there was the evacuation of foreign nationals. That was, I think, the only time the ceasefire one of the many ceasefires actually held because they had to make sure all the foreigners left. Uh, so, but it's gotten worse. I mean, it, I mean, every day I keep following, I keep calling people to get the news, to get updates, and it's, there's, no, there's been no let up. If anything, it's actually increased. There's been more airstrikes at homes. Been, there's been more looting and attacks on people, on, on civilians in their homes. You know, the, the, uh, the rape accounts have shot up. The humanitarian crisis is just unimaginable because even the foreign aid can't get through to those who need it the most. Aid agencies aren't, aren't being given the permits, nor, or, nor are they able to get to the areas where people need help the most. You know, Sudan is a poor country. We're one of the poorest countries in the world, you know. And like I said, we've been... We've been lurching from one conflict after the other, and there's been no let-up. So we've never had that chance to actually start to rebuild. And at the same time, you're getting the, the infrastructure like hospitals, banks, schools being hit. So even if the conflict ends today, you know, it's, we've been taken back a further 10, 20 years. So I don't know how we're going to start to, to, start to rebuild to re regenerate our country, you know, it's going to take. If it was difficult before, it's become near impossible right now. But this and, is the reality we have. Yeah, and I, and I do want to think about that in a minute. Um, uh, you know, where what's the update on things, and where can things possibly go from here? And, but I I do know that uh, you, for example, I think I read in Al Jazeera that you wrote a piece that you were um, one of the people that really documented that crisis, you know, Khartoum is on the Nile, and you kind of yeah. have to cross the desert to get um, out of the country from there if you can't leave uh, from the airport. Um, so there was a, a treacherous path to the sea, Port Sudan, and people went to uh, Saudi Arabia, and then from there elsewhere. Anything else that, that you want to say, you know, while you're on the air to a New York audience who may not have read about your journey, about what that kind of crisis was like? I mean, I'm lucky. I was able to get out. But there's still millions stuck in Sudan who are unable to, for whatever reason, they can't afford to leave. I mean, just to get on a bus to, to go to another city costs an arm and a leg. Mm. Not everyone has the means to do that. So it's, I'm, I, I mean, I, it's a, I, I, every time I think about the situation back home, it just, I, get really hurt, upset because there's only so much I can do. We try as much as we can. I, I do these interviews and I do all these, all the media just to shed a light on what's happening because people are being forced to leave their homes with nothing except the clothes on their back. And these people are already the below, living below poverty levels hmm. and they literally have nothing, nothing now. 
and borders are shutting in our faces. So we be, so a lot of them are being, you know, holed up inside this conflict where the two sides really do not care about our welfare. You know, there's no consideration for, we're collateral damage. As human beings right now in Sudan, you're collateral damage, just like any building, just like any bridge, just like any road. Wow. You know, so it's for, just... For our audience that's just joining us, you're listening to The Trauma Code on WBAI, and we have on the air Dalia Abdelmonem, who's a journalist from Sudan who's been kind of bringing us up to date. Why don't we catch our breath, we'll play a little bit of music, see if we can get in a little better place, and then get a little bit more updates and think about what we can do from here. Simon Fitzgerald, uh, and we have on the line Dahlia Abdelmonem joining us from London, telling us uh, about uh, her experience and her knowledge of uh, the crisis in Sudan. I wanted to take a little bit of musical break, and Dahlia, I have to uh, thank you. You know, I, I sort of offhanded asked you to give me some musical recommendations, and you gave me an awful lot to think about. Uh, and so far on today's show, we played Odyssey, That's Love, which is one of my new favorites. And that was just uh, Sinkane. Tell me about my pronunciation is off of the song. Uh-huh. Anything that you want to uh, tell us, uh, our audience in New York, about uh, Odyssey and Sinkane before we uh, move on to the, the news from uh, Sudan? Um, uh, Sinkane uses uh, his music sound is very Sudanese in a way. It's a mix. It's very East African. So if you listen yeah. to Ethiopian music, it's the same beat. Yeah, the Ethiopian sound uh, reminds me of. A yeah, and he uses a lot of funk as well. So I, I, I've enjoyed listening to him as well, a lot. And Odyssey is just a lyrical master. I mean, the way he he raps his hip hop is. I don't like really harsh hip hop. I like his style. You know, with he's saying something, and you listen to him, and he's he's um half Sudanese, half American, so he, like, he draws inspiration from both sides. And I think he was just on a European tour, so... And he also does a lot of songs with other Sudanese rappers, up-and-coming Sudanese mm. rappers. So for me, they're a good representation, because Sudanese music, in terms of the Arab, Arabic-speaking world, is not really well-known. Mm. So it's good to see these, you know, people like Odyssey and Sinkane and Nadina Ruby and so on, you know, coming up internationally where people are appreciative of their sound and what they represent and what they bring to the table in, in regards to music. And there's so many others, so many others up and coming. You know, every, every day I'm updating my Sudani music playlist when before it was traditionally just in Arabic. Now you get, you know, fusion, new soul, jazz, funk hip-hop, Afrobeats, and it's just incredible. For me, it's just an incredible sign of, you know, how artistic and how culturally nuanced Sudan is, and it's being offered on a musical plate for the world to see. Right, and probably some of that is sort of an echo of people in diaspora, right? These multiple influences coming back to Africa, as you mentioned, where a lot of people moved back in 2018. The sort yeah. of echoes and waves back and forth. Yeah, yeah. It just, I mean, I don't think 
countries or pe- musical genres should be like stagnant. I think they're very fluid. And I like the fact that they are, as musicians, they are very fluid. They can rap in Arabic, they can rap in Sudanese Arabic dialect, and they can rap in English. And they fuse all three dialects together, mm. all three languages together. And it just, it's just, for me, it's, it's an eye-opener. I love it. And especially for the younger generation of Sudanese, because they grow up knowing the likes of Eminem and Dr. Dre and... Uh, um, well, I'm showing my age right now, <laughs> you, know, you know, all these, you know, uh, so it's good to see that they're using the history and they're using our own sounds, but mixing it with new moderns, you know, modern takes on music, which is beautiful. Right. Um, and we'll have some more to play uh, later in the show. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I did want to get uh, a little bit of an, of, of an update, and, I, and it's a heavy topic, and I do appreciate you coming on the air. It's probably not fun to talk about these things. Um, but what I noticed in following news from Sudan is, I, I think, as you mentioned, as the attention was turned away, you know, from the, the crisis when many foreigners were, were um, struggling to leave the country, that now there's a lot sort of happening in the dark, right, as people turn their attention elsewhere, as I mentioned, sort of, you know, to the Sea of Azov or the, you know, the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean um, or even the Mediterranean Sea that um, our, our attention is not as much turned. And I think that the crisis, for example, in Darfur has entered um, a new phase, right? Would you agree in which it's sort of recreating the genocide from, uh, from more than a decade ago that I think was well known at the time? Do you think that's Absolutely. A I mean the targeting of certain ethnic tribes and ethnic groups is reminiscent of what happened in the Darfur War, the Darfur War, Darfur War Part 1, so to speak. Mm. And it's, um, I mean, news, the news cycle is very much into nanoseconds. You know, you want to get what's happening right now, instant. You know, you want to, you know, and I think there's also fatigue involved with this political fatigue, there's war fatigue, and people are just tired. And there's also the age-old misconception that, oh, it's Africa. Africa is always having wars or famine or so on. But the people tend to forget that there's outside factors at play here. Like, for example, you have the European Union who talk about human rights and, and human dignity and liberty, which is wonderful on paper. But then why do you go and strike arms deals with despotic governments in, in places like Africa and Asia and the Middle East? You know, it's like they give with one hand, but they take with the other. And the ones who end up paying the price are us, the people, because we're still being governed by despotic rulers who are, you know, you know placed, you know, placed, you know, they're propped up by, by entities and governments who, because it's in their interest that these players stay in place, but it's not in our interest as people. And I think in, when it comes to the news cycle, they tend to skip that part. They don't like to talk about it, but that's the reality. Right. And, you know, I, I, I'm always a, a little bit... Um uh, I always feel a little bit bad. Sometimes following the news of a war, it feels like you're following a, a horse race or a sporting event um, if you're far enough away to be untouched by it. And that's that's not um, the interest that I have in Sudan. But I, I do think in trying to think about where things stand, what the future might look like, and what actions might have um, kind of utility, just um, trying to understand a little bit about what's going on across the nation, right? And it, it sounds like the the RSF, the, those forces are kind of running wild in Darfur. Um, Khartoum, it sounds like it's still been a, a contested territory. I don't really know much of the rest of the country. It does sound like Port Sudan is probably still in the government's control on the on the um, on that Gulf Coast. But where does the where does this conflict stand? This power struggle? Are we entering into a war of attrition, or, or what does the near and moderate future look like? Um, I think. There's a lot of um, ap- uh, actors, you know, international actors who can actually have a bigger say in this conflict coming to an end. But so far, they're holding back. They're not really p- putting their weight on either side to make sure that a cessation of conflict comes to, comes into play. And it's also... At, at the same time, a lot of our neighboring countries, they all have their own problems. And they, you know, you try to get your own house in order before you can help 
you know, your neighbor, so to speak. So it's, but I think ultimately the civilian side, the civic groups, you know, the politicians, the democratic uh, front, the civilian democratic front has to step up. And they also have to be involved. They have to be made a part of any talk or any process to bring this war to an end. So far, every time they've had cease, uh, uh, peace talks, they've only involved the, the two sides, the RSF and the army. They've never gotten any civilian side involved, which I think is a big mistake. And I think uh, the likes of the United States, the, the, the Biden administration and... You know, another party, other party stake, uh, stakeholders have realized they need to take a step back. They need to reassess, and they need to come up with a better plan because whatever they've had so far has been a total failure. So, who are the parties that are in a position to to mediate such a conflict? Uh, you mentioned the United States. Um, mm. Are they playing a role? Could they play more of a role? And who else? The European Union or? or any an African Union? Who else is in a position uh, to assert the, their influence? The United Arab Emirates, uh, the African Union, like you mentioned, the United Nations, EGAD, which is an Eastern African uh, bloc of countries. They can have a bigger say because they also ultimately can can be affected by the spillover mm. for, of of this war. I'm sorry. Can, can I stop you for a second? Why the UAE? Mm. Um. The UAE has become a power player in the region. It's become really a force. And the UAE, for the wars in Libya and Yemen, the RSF troops were used. Mm. So the UAE does have a big part to play, so to speak. And they have also have a lot of economic interest in the whole Red Sea side, like in Djibouti. They have ports. They were in talks to set up a like to re redevelop a small port in, in Sudan as well. So the U UAE has become a major player in politics, More especially so in the, the region. Saudis. The Saudis, not as much as the UAE, but the UAE basically has been flexing its muscles for the past 10 to 15 years, hmm. and they've really become a giant, so to speak. And they, and, and they have a line of communication to the RSF, you're saying? Exactly. Actually, to both sides. In my opinion, they're hedging their best as to which side will be the victorious one. Mm. But they can yank the chain, so to speak, for whether it's the RSF or the, or the army. They can do their part if they wanted to. And, and I think also the, uh, with the likes of, the, of countries like the UAE and Saudi, they have a deep fear of Islamists coming to power. And I, for the, there's that aspect as well that they want to make sure that, you know, the Islamists don't come back to power. I also have to say that it's not in the interest of any neighboring country for there to be a successful civilian government in Sudan, mm. simply because then you'll have their own people looking and saying, well, how come they have it and we don't? So it's not in their interest that we move forward and, you know, to have a, and get what the people demand, which is a civilian government, which is what we've been calling for since 2018. We, the, you know, we even had a chant during the, during the revolution. The army goes back to the barracks and the RSF is dissolved. That was a very popular chant during the revolution. And it's actually gained momentum now because that's what we're calling. We're like, okay, this is what needs to happen for any chance for this country to move forward. And the other part of that question was these sort of civilian groups what uh, organizations or institutions, uh, who, who is in a position to represent uh, the voice of the Sudanese people in front of these military organizations? Well, that's, that's a million-dollar question. Right, well, right there now... Was, there was a transitional no, government, right? Is, there was, yeah, there was. But right now, um, no one has stepped up. There's no, I wouldn't say there's, there's no one person or one character that I would say he or she will lead us forward. Right. But I think what needs to be ha what's, what needs to happen and what is happening is that, you know, quietly there are some groups trying to, you know, like uh, set up some advocacy form of, you know, consultations or, you know, to try and get something done. Because we realized waiting for outside parties to get to help us out of this quagmire is not going to work. It needs to come from us. So I think that's what they're doing right now, quietly and beneath the surface. You know, they're talking, they're trying to regroup. 
Like I said, don't forget a lot of, you know, this war caught a lot of us by surprise. And just, and it takes a while to actually regain the fact that, okay, what do I do now? Because for, for a long while, all of us, all of us, all we could think of was how do we get out safely? How do I make it out? And now that some of us are out, we're in that privileged position where we can actually sit down together and say, okay, what can we do? What can I, as Dahlia, do along with so-and-so? And it starts small and hopefully, but I mean, I've already been getting, you know, people have been reaching out and saying, you know, we need to meet up. We need to see what we can do. Appeals are being done, you know, send a group of, you know, let's say Sudanese members of the of the diaspora in the UK, you know, standout members. They can go and talk to their local uh, government officials or even go to talk to like the head of the foreign secretary in the UK and it's small steps, but hopefully those steps will lead to something more concrete. Um, and uh, I also, you know, as a trauma surgeon, um, I have sort of uh, been brought to my attention uh, Sudanese physician organizations, and they've been taking a, kind of a leadership role in a lot of what's going on. Anything else that you want to say about, about kind of that movement? Um, the the medical sector in Sudan has been nothing but amazing. I, see, I, I actually have to give a shout out to not only the medics, but also the local resistance groups, the local people in local neighborhoods. They're the ones who are, you know, going and finding the rape kits and taking them to rape victims. Because like I said, eight convoys can't get through. And hospitals have been bombed, you know, hospitals have been raided but they continue to do their job. They continue to serve those who need it, you know, help those who need most. And it's been a horrible time because there's no power. There's been power outages. There's no running water. Uh, generators aren't working because there's no diesel to, to, to power them up. So the medics and local resistance groups have been the lifeline of Sudan and the people who are still in Sudan. Because without them, I think the number of dead and the number of those who've been injured or so on would be much, much higher. And I think also in terms of trauma, we haven't dealt with it yet. I think we're just all working on autopilot. And maybe, I don't know, I mean, I just go on autopilot. I try not to give in to my emotions and just because it, it doesn't help me, it doesn't do anything. So, but I think... They'll be, we'll all need like a lot of counseling and therapy pretty soon because it's been horrific what we've all been through. And but we can't stop. We just have to continue. We can't take a breather. We can't take time off. You've been very generous with your time with us. Um, we're bumping up towards the end of the hour. Anything else that you want to uh, say while you have uh, the ear of of as many New Yorkers as as can hear us on the radio? Um, I mean Sudan maybe you. Maybe some people don't even know where Sudan is, but empathy is needed. And I think people need to understand that none of us want to leave our homes and seek a life elsewhere. A lot of people who do that are forced to do that. And to, uh, I know, like, like you mentioned in the, top of, in the top of, uh, beginning of the program, 700 migrants died in the sea, but the media was obsessed with five billionaires who went down to check out a wreckage. And, for example, in one city in Darfur, Jinena, more than 1,700 kids have died, all under the age of 16. Now, that's a horrific statistic, but no one talks about it. So, I know it's hard and people, everyone has, you know, crap that they deal with, but I think shows like yours should shed some light on what's happening and read up and see what you can do. There's so many you know, organizations based in the U.S. that will take any donation, and, they, and it helps. They make sure the money gets to those who need it the most, which is made mainly the medical sector in Sudan, doctors. They don't even have, like, normal necessities, like band, bandages or syringes. There was one hospital, all the dialysis patients died because they couldn't power up the dialysis machine. Fifteen patients died in one go. It's just... It's just, it's I mean, this is 2023, and people are dying because of no power, no water, no medical aid, nothing. And, and, 
And I've been in touch yeah. with the Sudanese American Physicians Association, and maybe we'll link to them as as one uh, out, uh, you know, outfit that people can can uh, look into uh, supporting. Um, any anything else you want to say in terms of who who people can support or where they can go if they're interested in in the the you know the welfare and the future of the Sudanese people? Uh, I not. I'm not good. I think the Sudanese Doctors Association in the U.S. is one of the best organizations. And also, people like, uh, I mean, I'm not really clued up on the U.S., but the Sudanese diaspora, I'm pretty sure, that, if I'm not mistaken, in Washington, they're a large community. And also, in there's a lot of Sudanese figures you can reach out to. And they all, you know, the Sudanese diaspora keeps in touch with each other. Mm. So if you ask one person, they will help you. They will, you know, connect you to someone else, basically. And, uh, but, yeah, I, I will just say read up. If you find this, if this, you know, this case or this crisis affects you or touches you in any way, read up. There's so much information out there, material, that you can learn more from and see how you can help if you want to help. And, uh, you know, I'll say I, I, I wish that we were speaking to you and, with you in your, uh, you know, your own studio in Khartoum that... Uh, um, and, and I'm sure that you're in a tight space right now with a lot of family around. Um, and, and while hearing all this, the family and the children in the background can be a little bit distracting. There's a way in which the, I've been taught that having the children around and, and being present uh, is also a sign of life and a sign of the future. So um, uh, in, in a strange way, I've been kind of appreciating that as, as a sign of life and future that, that's bubbling up around you while you talk to us about this crisis. Yeah. And they're my nephews. They're... They leave a lot of the pain and the dep- despair that I feel when you see them because I'm like, well, this is all for them. So, Well, they're welcome anytime on a trauma code. We appreciate them. <laughs> uh, and we definitely appreciate you spending your time with us. Um, and uh, thank you again for all of the excellent musical recommendations. Um, I do always give um, uh, my guests a chance to talk about any cultural music, any other recommendation. Anyone else that you want to talk about and share with our audience and encourage us to listen to or to see or to read um, before we before we lose you uh read up on the old jazz like there's a um, one of our great jazz musicians is called Sharhabil Ahmed he's like the godfather of jazz Sudanese jazz and he just had actually had a feature in uh, GQ magazine Middle East now he is brilliant I love him so if you can read up on him listen to his music it would be amazing He's, yeah, he's just one of the best. All right. Well, thanks again for uh, joining us, Dahlia. I appreciate it so much, and we'll have to be in touch, okay? Okay. Thank you for having me. All the best. Simon Fitzgerald in studio wrapping up our show. Our interview was with today Dalia Abdelmonem, who is a uh, journalist from Sudan, uh, joining us from London. Uh, and if you appreciate us, we appreciate you. You can find all of our previous shows on the WBAI radio archives as well as on uh, uh, our uh, podcast feed wherever you get yours under Trauma Code. Uh, and if you appreciate what we do, uh, we uh, donate our time, but we have to pay the bills at the station to keep the legacy and the history of WBAI alive and well. So definitely you can give online at give to WBAI.org or hit the donate button on WBAI.org's website. And you can call in a pledge at 212-209-2950, And if you want to reach out to us, we are trauma code WBAI. Uh, on uh, multiple social media platforms and trauma code WBAI at gmail.com. Thank you for joining us, New York.
Good afternoon. For WPFW Washington and WBAI New York, I'm Darnia Samuels. Here are some headlines for this hour. It has been 16 months since Russia invaded Ukraine, and a new chapter in this war story unfolded over the weekend when the Wagner Group, a Russian paramilitary organization, initiated a rebellion against the government of Russia. This revolt arose amidst escalating tensions between the Russian Ministry of Defense and Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is the leader of the Wagner Group. Since that rebellion just a few days ago, Russia's military has withdrawn troops and tanks from the streets of Moscow after Prigozhin called off his short-lived armed mutiny and has agreed to go into exile in Belarus. Today, President Biden addressed this revolt for the first time, emphasizing that the United States was no part of it. The president said he asked for hour-by-hour updates on the situation throughout the weekend, in addition to holding virtual meetings with key allies. He added, and I quote, They agreed with me that we had to make sure we gave Putin no excuse to blame this on the West, to blame this on NATO. We made clear that we were not involved. We had nothing to do with it. This was part of a struggle within the Russian system, end quote. Just over a year ago, in May 2022, the former Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C., was sold for $375 million to the CGI Merchant Group of Miami, Florida. Today, the Supreme Court dropped a case concerning a lower court opinion that allowed a handful of members of Congress to sue a government agency for records related to that hotel. The case raised questions about when members of Congress, and not a full committee, had the legal right to sue an executive agency for documents under a specific federal law. While most of the documents related to the Trump Hotel deal had already been turned over, the dispute was expected to resolve whether challenges brought by lawmakers in the minority could go forward in future cases. To your local news, in New York, Governor Kathy Hochul announced today that former New York Lieutenant Governor Richard Ravitch has died at age 89. According to Ravitch's wife, Kathleen, he died in a hospital yesterday. However, his cause of death was not disclosed. Richard Ravitch served as lieutenant governor from 2009 to 2010 under Governor David Patterson. Governor Kathy Hochul remembered Ravitch, saying in part, From steering the MTA, or New York City subway system, through a critical time to serve as lieutenant governor, he was a steady, savvy, and brilliant leader and a public servant in the truest sense of the term. As governor, I greatly appreciated Dick Ravitch's wisdom and thoughtful advice, and I know all New Yorkers have benefited from his contributions, end quote. In the D.C. area, it's no doubt that Giant Food is one of the most popular supermarket chains, but it's possible that some locations in the D.C. region may have to close. The reason? An increase in thefts and violence. Although shoplifting has always plagued grocery stores, Giant Foods, which is headquartered in Landover, Maryland, has joined a long list of other regional and national retailers that are reporting a boost in thefts, sometimes conducted by large organized crime rings. Ira Cress, the president of Giant Foods, said, and I quote, They hire other thieves and provide them with a list of products to steal. Those thieves then go out and fill the list. Cress added that he's mostly concerned about the increase in violence that has come because of more thefts. He said, and I quote, what we always must do is ensure we can run our stores safely and profitably. If I can't do both of those things, I'll have no choice but to close the store, end quote. Cress did not say which giant stores would be forced to close if the need arises. In today's weather, it's currently about 76 degrees in New York and 88 degrees in D.C. That's all for your headline news this hour. For WPFW Washington and WBAI New York, I'm Darnia Samuels. Please be safe and thank you for listening. Previous program was Trauma Code, heard Mondays at 2 p.m. here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and 
WBAI.org online. Stay tuned for more programming coming up in this hour. Um, Vantage Point with the, with the, ooh, excuse me. Vantage Point with the professor, Ron Daniels, will return next Monday.